what is up, K Corner Podcast, and how are we doing today? First off, I'd like to apologize for uh, not uploading yesterday. I did have a decently enough valid excuse. So first off, uh, I didn't want to upload because my father was mowing our, our yard, and it is routinely extremely loud when he comes near any of the bedside windows. The only time it's really not loud is when he is in the back. And he kind of takes wide meandering gestures. So you never really know when he's at the front or the back. I didn't want to have to pause and kind of work through that. I also got out of work really late and the NBA finals were on last night and I haven't really been able to upload right after. I always upload on the same day because I play like Monday, Saturday or Monday, Wednesday, Saturday, and then back to Monday or something stupid like that. So I wanted to be able to wait, watch that, see how all that kind of played out last night and I, I was super happy with how the game was it was a it was a lot of fun there's some great moments um I just love the fact that all the people that were originally saying like hey the Suns in four because they came out to a good 2-0 lead um and that's just not the case you know this is a really good Bucks team we knew they were a good team but people got to make grand statements to make themselves feel important um what we did see last night in the basketball game was more of the same in the game that we saw on Sunday. Um, I think that the the Suns had everyone play poorly except for one player. Um, mostly yesterday, it was, it was really just Devin Booker playing continually well. Now, he didn't pass the ball well. It was a lot of isolation. Um, Chris Paul didn't play well either. Um, Devin Booker had 42, though. Really, really big game out of him from a scoring aspect, but he only had two assists and he had uh, four turnovers and should have fouled out of the game. And what you kind of saw was the problem with this team is that their buckets weren't necessarily as easy as Milwaukee and down the stretch, it kind of laid out. Um, Chris Paul had himself a horrendous game. He didn't shoot a single free throw. So when a small guard doesn't get to the free throw line, that's a sign of them settling for mid-range jump shots and not attacking really the course as well as you'd want them to. Um, he ended up with 10 points, five turnovers, seven assists, four fouls. Then the next best player was really Jay Crowder. DeAndre Ayton didn't have a good game and they've just been ice cold shooting. They shot seven of 23, 30% and only attempted 19 free throws while also turning the ball over 17 times. Just not a very good game out of that squad. And then on the other side, you saw more of the same, um, but kind of been flipped in reverse. So Chris Middleton has really been the second lead scorer on this team through the first part of the series. Giannis has been dominating <clears throat> in and around in the block. Um, and I think the Suns said, hey, we're going to take away Giannis. We're going to make Chris Middleton be the scorer. And Chris answered the bell. He was 15 of 33 from the field, so he got up a ton of shots, 7 of 8 from the free throw line. And he had 40 points along with 4 assists, only 1 turnover, and 6 boards. He had a fantastic game. And you saw more of the same. Um, pick and rolls with him and Giannis is extremely deadly uh, against this Suns team. I don't know exactly the, the the specific matchup that they're exploiting, but when they have Brooke Lopez on the court, even when he has 14 points and he doesn't shoot a, a, a single, he doesn't make a single three, what you see is that this team in this group that um, Giannis and Middleton are who they're going to fluctuate all of the offense through and there's no four there's no four man that can stop Giannis when he gets rolling and so what they had to do is they had to double him and you know shade off Middleton to force Middleton into shooting a lot 33 shots is a lot in a game maybe more than you necessarily want him to but it ended up being really good they ended up winning Milwaukee outscored Phoenix by 13 in the fourth quarter um, which really goes to show just how how dominant um, this Bucks team can get down the stretch, how dominant, or sorry, by 12, sorry, not 13, can really be extremely dominant in the second half. And a lot of that scoring was Chris Middleton getting the ball, calling for the ball, and, and attacking. You also look at the free throw differences. Uh, the Bucks attempted 10 more free throws on the game and only had five turnovers. So 10 more free throws, Five turnovers versus 17 turnovers, and this was still a really close game. And if Chris Paul doesn't have a horrendous turnover, then this team could, you know, have easily have lost. And I think that goes to show the strength of the Suns roster is that even when the only good player on their team is playing well, Devin Booker, after having a horrendous game three, uh, 
and everyone else is kind of failing to perform. Jay Crowder's three of ten, DeAndre Ayton's three of nine, three of nine, and Chris Paul's five of thirteen. This team, this team can still defend well, can still do the little things to make this a tight matchup. One of the things I, I really want to harp on in this game, though, is that Milwaukee has all the energy heading into Phoenix. They've already been to Phoenix. They know. They know the kind of the climate and, and, and the intensity that that Phoenix is going to bring. And I really like Milwaukee to take three straight. I think that Phoenix ends up evening it up when they go back to Milwaukee, hopefully. But like I said, I always thought this, this series was going to go to seven. I always thought that there, there was too much um, talent on both sides, that no one team was much better. I favored the Bucks overall in talent, but the Suns play so much better and more as a team. But we saw really a lot of isolation ball. A lot of stagnant growth. 18 assists as a team to 17 turnovers is not ideal. They also had 24 fouls. Jay Crowder had five. Uh, Chris Paul had four. And Devin Booker had five. And he probably should have had six. Um, and, and what you saw was is that the guards, even though Jay Ruh Holiday didn't play well, four of 20, right? If he plays at least a little bit better uh, from a scoring-wise. This game could have definitely been a blowout. He, he did have one turnover to seven assists, though, and it was just the efficiency of the way the Bucks played. Uh, they only turned, um, you know, they turned 15, they turned 20 assists into four turnovers as a starting group. That That's much better uh, than you kind of saw on the side of the, you know, the side of the Suns. And what you, what you end up, seeing as a grand maturation of this is that Milwaukee, the Suns came out and had a game plan and they fooled Milwaukee twice. Milwaukee changed that game plan heading into the home stretch. Whether you want to say home court advantage had a lot to do with it or not, that's that's fair to kind of talk about. But what we do know is that Milwaukee changed it up using Giannis Antetokounmpo and Chris Middleton in the pick and roll, getting effective mid-range jumpers for Chris Middleton, open looks at the rim, and Giannis easy rolling baskets where he doesn't have to create on his own, and it's really stifled this Suns team. And on the same aspect, this Suns team, who hadn't been turning the ball over well, who had been shooting the ball well from three, look lost at times offensively, are struggling to move the ball, uh, tend tend to have it stick on even Devin Booker or Chris Paul over dribbling. And this isn't the first time that we've seen Chris Paul fail in, in the postseason. Now, him making it to the finals is is really a testament to how great he is and how, how well he can manage and change teams in the regular season especially. But I really hope for Chris Paul's sake that he figures this out because that was a horrendous performance over there in this finals. And what ends up happening at times in Chris Paul's career is that one bad tournament, right? One one group of bad shots. It always ends up leading to a lot more. It's never just the one that they see. It's always three or four, you know, more bad shots. And the last turnover of the game was just him being out of control, knowing that he hadn't done a lot and, and enforcing the issue. And what ends up happening is a guy who has 42, who's 17 of 28, who has eight of nine free throws, doesn't get the last shot at the end of the game. And, and that should have been a, a key for them is that, hey, Chris isn't really feeling it. We need to go to Devin. And there just wasn't enough in-game adjustments. Hopefully when they go back, the series is tied. It's 0-0. It's like they're playing at their home court again. They got to win two out of three at home. Well, two out of the three games are going to be at home. One of the games is going to be away. But what, what I think best describes this series is everyone coming out, and, and I want to say this as well, is... When the Hawks went 2-0 or 1-0 with a blowout against the Bucs, and everyone's like, yep, series is over. And then the Bucs come storming back and really silence all the haters. Suns go up 2-0, and the Bucs are like, yep, okay, we're going to make our adjustments. Can you can you change and, and be better than our adjustments? And the answer has been no so far in these playoffs. And part of that has been this dynamic duo of Giannis Antetokounmpo and Chris Middleton. And going into the playoffs, I talked about it a lot, is that I don't know if, if you're really – looking at Chris Middleton to be your number two scorer. I don't know if he really has the juice. I was nervous in that Hawks series with Trey Young having the juice and Giannis maybe struggling is how does that all kind of balance out? And what what we saw and what we're kind of routinely seeing is that Chris Middleton 
has made the most amount of clutch time go-ahead baskets in this playoff series is in any series since like 2000 or something. He's tied with LeBron James on the Cavs team uh, in like 2007. And you, if you remember that, he hit like three or four shots against the Pistons to go ahead in the final seconds. And it's just Chris Middleton being able to get his shot, make his shot, and be a dynamic player with Giannis knowing that he's the guy and Giannis knowing that he's the focal point. And them not being able to stop it, no one being able to say, "Yep, we we can, we know where they're going to go here." And it's just been a very impressive back-to-back performances from a Bucks team who looked out of their depth the first two games. And and I said that I was like, "Hey, I, I don't want to call this series over. I don't want to call it anything." But those two games were, were were tough for the Bucks, and hopefully the Suns figure it out because it'd be very embarrassing to win two at home and then get swept out of the building as soon as the Bucks switch up one thing. Um, but this one thing's working, so adjustments within adjustments. I, I, I don't know if the Suns are going to be able to make it. I, I assume going back, they're going to get a little bit better shooting performances out of their shooters. Jay Crowder led the team in three-point shots, three of nine. Uh, Mikael Bridges, DeAndre Ayton, and Chris Paul didn't attempt a free throw, which I think should be unacceptable from those three. And it just wasn't a very good performance. In back-to-back performances, you know, the Suns haven't looked like a, a great unit, haven't looked coalesce like they did so often in the regular season and so far in the playoffs and that's just a testament to how good this Bucks team is how how great Budenholder is uh, on coaching up a you know a great team so I'm looking forward to the next game in this series I think it's going to be a ton of fun it is Saturday though because we got to wait the travel days and then it's Tuesday and then Thursday is possibly game seven but we should see how this kind of you know breaks away um you know as late as Tuesday so my Wednesday upload will be right in schedule, and then if not, I'll obviously do an NBA Finals special that Friday. Um, first off, I would like to apologize moving on from NBA basketball. Oh, not moving on yet. Moving away from the NBA Finals, I do want to talk about just quickly, 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 um, the international team, the men's international team is definitely struggling. They've seen the be struggling with the physicality of play in the European leagues. And I think that's a testament to the NBA uh, routinely letting refs dominate basketball games, just dominate basketball games where a guy's out of control, throws his hands up and he always gets a foul call. Sometimes the ball rims out and then because it rims out, they're like, Oh, we got it. We got to call this. And I just think that's a hilarious and B you're seeing kind of the ramifications of that. But also another thing is it's early, guys. I think the NBA team is is maybe in a state of loss of identity. They don't know who they are. LeBron James isn't there. They don't have Kobe. They don't have, I don't believe they have Melo either. And so it's a little bit out of their normal depth for players playing on this huge international stage with a little bit different rules where you got to be overly physical and other teams being more well prepared because you got to think like KD is going against Joe Ingles and Patty Mills. You would never say that those teams are better, but if they're playing more like a team and they're playing like an organized unit early on, you're going to kind of see these strides that NBA basketball in America has made. And that's been such a dominant force year in and year out is you might start to see these teams catch up as you see less offensive ball movement, less, less team-based organization as you continue to look at the trend in in, in in basketball where it's isolation, high pick and rolls, attacking downhill, lobs, and hopefully spot-up shooters in the corner. Basically, uh, a rhythm that I'm not going to say that LeBron made famous or made popular, but definitely a, a style of play and a brand that he he created the importance of. I, I think that we can kind of sleep on the importance of what LeBron James has done, but he really made it known that, hey, you want other people around it, but as long as you have spot-up shooters, if you run heavy dribble, heavy uh, evol- uh, isolation ball, you can win. And maybe we're starting to see these ramifications also with the soft calls of the NBA. I mean, I routinely see it, hand checks, guys uncomfortable with the ball, guys pressuring them. It, it's really tough to play defense. Now, what would I say that the athletes are worse? No. Would I say that you know getting a shot blocked is harder now than it was? Yeah. But uh, the the physicality that you can really play with while handling the balls. I mean, the amount of moving screens that get called in an NBA game it's it's unfucking believable. 
Like I get you want to make sure people aren't getting hurt and people are staying safe, but Jesus Christ, man, I, I think there's five to six every night. And, and it's like, God, that like that's what you want to call? And with NBA refs jerking themselves off every night, telling themselves how important they are, similar to MLB umpires, um, it just has made the game foul-ridden, late in games, people looking for fouls. And I think because it hasn't been, you know, petitioned out of the game, taken out of the game, it's really rearing its ugly head at this point where some of these international refs, these refs who are looking for different things, may not may, may not be falling for the bullshit calls that are routinely called in the NBA. And I'm honestly looking for it. If the NBA loses, that'd literally be the perfect, the perfect whirlwind to explain what's going on. And maybe some changes happen to the NBA where it's a little bit less foul-ridden product. Like, Obviously, you want to get to the foul line. Obviously, the foul line is important. If you make 88%, you better be trying to get to the foul line at all times. But when I see people jump an elbow into a dude who's closing out on them and then the ref calling it a three-point foul because, uh, like, that's it's an offensive foul. We, You know, growing up, we all knew it was an offensive foul but because there's a hidden, you know, archive of a rule where initiating contact isn't necessarily means if you're closing out on a shooter, you're just supposed to maintain your ground and put your hand up, like, Give me a break. Moving on from basketball, we're going to move to something that I actually for completely forgot about, and I apologize. So I don't know why, but I feel like the Open is usually later on in the year. I may just be, I think, I usually think, but it's later in the year. However, with the Olympics, I think they maybe pushed it up before the Olympics because they wanted it to be a major. The Olympics will come out, and then you have like the FedEx Cup playoffs and all that stuff that kind of end your season. And with the Olympics running for a while, they wanted to really make sure that guys had enough time to prepare for that and for this Open. So what is happening this weekend? It's the Open. It's the the British Open, one of the most famous. It's just known as the Open. It, it happens, or it's not British, sorry. It's it's in Scotland, I'm pretty sure. God, I'm just, I am just ruining my start to this. Oh no, it's the British Open. Okay. It is the fourth and final major uh, in 2021. It got canceled in 2020 due to... Um, COVID-19, it is played at Royal St. George's Golf Club near the shores of Southeast England. <clears throat> we do have the opening day results. So, Luis Oosthuizen uh, at 6 uh, under is leading the way. Jordan Spieth at 5 under, who started, I want to say, 3 over. Had himself a wonderful second half of the golf course. Benjamin Hebert. Uh, Justin Rose, you know, Tommy Fleetwood, guys that are always kind of around, Scotty Scheffler, Colin Morikawa. Uh, a lot of these rounds, right, are teeing off early in the morning, you know, before we even really wake up. There's there's some that are starting at like 425 Eastern time and, and some that are uh, a little bit later in the day. However, I do want to say that this is one of the, the funnest courses to kind of manage because it's so different. Um, when we're watching, you know, United States courses, American courses, there's a completely different feel than the way that the British manage and, and maintain a course. They really give you a, a nice fairway to work with. But the rough and, and the secondary rough are, are kind of d- difficult. And then it gets into the fescue where it's 9 to 10 inch long wild grass basically growing. And if you hit it in there... It's hard to recover, so managing your golf shots and managing the way that you swing and perform is, I would say, the 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 reason why it gives you such a unique look is because guys who play a different way of golf than you see on the U.S., you know, the PGA Tour so often end up getting and having a wonderful chance to play well. Uh, and in, in, in response to that, I do want to break down some comments I heard today. So anyone who watched the the match, Bryson DeChambeau felt a little bit more not robotic. Now he did have some weird comments where he's being a nerd, but he he came off likable and palatable and fun to be around. And he had some god awful comments following. Um, his results in the first round. He played one over. He hit four out of 14 uh, fairways, and he complained, and he said, my driver sucks. Now, the the owner-operator marketing R&D guy that handles um, the Cobra research, 
had some comments about that. He said, it's like when an eight-year-old says that they're, they hate you. They don't really hate you. They're, they're just kind of mad. And I thought that was a great way to sum up Bryson DeChambeau and maybe why someone like Brooks Koepka doesn't really like him is because he's like a phony little child. So Bryson literally gets hundreds. He has, you know, five, six people working on his R&D team just on his driver alone. He's getting 15 different face types and shaft types, and he's trying to hit golf balls as hard as he literally possibly can every single time with as much rotation, with as much this, which is much that, and he's blaming the driver when he hits like shit on a day. And he's like, I'm on I'm on the edge. And it's like two weeks ago when you're hitting great and you made changes, why did you make changes? Well, because you wanted more out of it. And that's that's the risk, right? I just I just don't understand uh his philosophy. It's like he's purposely trying to bomb himself just because he's throwing a little pissy fit. And I saw this while watching his YouTube videos is that he came off super childish and like, yep, the match is over. I'm four strokes behind. It's over. I can possibly make that up. Just trying to go out and finish holes. And Cobra is a very well-managed golf brand and very well-respected. Maybe they don't have the 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 elite status that Titleist has and some of those other, you know, Callaway golf brands have. But Cobra is well-respected. It's an American brand. And uh, the, he said it kind of best. I can't remember the guy's name. If you want to read the article, I read, I read the article about it. And the guy was like, we have tons of people. And for Bryson to kind of say that, that he's working on the edge and he isn't getting any help is kind of disrespectful to, to everything that we're doing because we're we're bending over backwards for this guy. We're we're doing things that no other golf club is. We're we're doing things that no one else is even willing to do. And we have this, you know, chotch basically coming out here and saying that that we're, we're he's just so frustrating because you want to like the guy because he's a young palatable golfer saying fuck you to the normal golf guys, right? Like anytime someone says fuck you to the establishment, sorry, I, I just love, I love them. It's just my inert person that when they try to go against the establishment because they're different or weird or quirky or whatever you want to say, and, and and they do it in a way that's their own, it's great. But the more, the more that we kind of watch this guy, the more that we understand him, the less I like the, honestly, the less I like of him. And I thought it was a turning point when I watched him at the match. But this one, right, it's not me. It's the tool's fault. Like, dude, if you slow your swing down for a second, like, if you're squaring up the ball well every time, it's going to go fucking straight. You're trying to do something that no one else is doing. And now you're complaining because you're trying it out on the open? Like, when you won the U.S. Open, how many times have you changed your shafts and everything since then? Like, it's just a dumb comment. And he seems kind of arrogant about how early his success has been. And I don't know. I don't know if it's if it's really the right thing to do. I, I just, I just, it's hard for me to wrap my head around this guy because so oftentimes, People in the media go after guys like him. They go after guys that are routinely different. But he almost wants that. Like, if I'm done with the golf and I and I'm pissed with my clubs, like I'm pissed with my driver. I'm like, yeah, this driver, it just isn't working out. I'm gonna take that out to the media. Like, if I'm another brand, I'm raising an eyebrow aggressively at this and I'm definitely calling and apologizing to everyone and you know before I even go out tomorrow I'm going to apologize and say my comments however angry I was or is never the right way to approach it I know the guys there are bending over backwards for me every single day and I just meant like this driver sucks in this moment because I, I made a wrong decision but I don't think he'll ever do that and that's the frustrating part because I just want to like him now some things that I'm going to talk about this tournament is it makes for a great Saturday, Sunday, because I'm going to be able to watch, you know, early on in the day, some great success from all these people. And my, I have a, I have a sleeper pick. Now this guy, I, I've liked him. My brother likes him. This guy young, I think he's 24. I think he's my age. Victor Havland. He's two under at this point. I think this is a, I think this is a movement day. I'm going to have predictions 
uh, on kind of how I see this playing out. But I think Bryson DeChambeau goes out tomorrow. And I wouldn't be surprised if he, if he golfs a three over. He is one of those dudes that when things are going wrong, they implode. He he struggles on capping a tough round, in my opinion, from what I've seen. And I think this is going to be another instance where Bryson DeChambeau complains about anything and everything under the sun and has a terrible outing and maybe even misses the cut. However, um, one thing that I do want to know is that Phil Mickelson is... Tied for last place at 10 over. So, awful day for the lefty. Um, since playing with Tom Brady, man has struggled. I know it was two weeks ago, but I'm just saying. Ever since that, like, fifth hole where he tried to drive 700 yards down the fairway, he's had a tough go at it. But we'll have more updates tomorrow. Um, I'll kind of tweet out my uh, poll results on Saturday from my account if you guys are following me. Um, at K Corner Podcast, I post on there and everything, and I just it sucks when someone that you wanna wanna root for is turns out to be a dick. So I'm no longer a Bryson DeChambeau fan until he a apologizes and b in a genuine way that doesn't make me think it was forced. What that means is is that I'm gonna wait until the next big tournament and I'm gonna wait to see if he blames the guys again. You know, or if he plays well, is he gonna give him any credit? I don't know. I don't I don't think I've ever heard him give credit to anyone other than himself either, looking back at it. So, moving on, guys, I'm going to be talking about the NFL. I know, I know, I know, NFL, why are we talking about it? There's still so long, so much time before the NFL's coming back. And I just wanted to bring up two things, or three things, sorry. The first thing is that Richard Sherman got arrested on domestic violence charges. Um, Sounds like he was broke into or entered into the home of his girlfriend, fiance, wife, whatever have you, and refused to leave. The police got called on, and he may have assaulted a police officer. Also, a hit and run where he reportedly hit an officer. So, sounds like a tough time. He is reportedly in jail without bail being available to him, which is per code on any domestic violence abuse. The good news is, is that anyone who tried to read the article is like, oh, woman beater, of course. Uh, reportedly, he didn't hit his a wife or whatever it is, he simply wouldn't leave and was arguing with her. Next up, we have a story about Dwayne Haskins. Um, you guys remember Dwayne, um, Ohio State prospect, was on Washington, now on the boys over there in Pittsburgh Steeler land. And Pittsburgh Steelers guys always involved in domestic violence, but this time it is not his fault. So Dwayne Haskins, he was reportedly in a hotel room in Las Vegas in, I can't remember when it was, that's irrelevant, was in a hotel room and his then girlfriend um, beat him pretty aggressively. It sounds like um, he punched her or she punched him so hard that he chipped a tooth and he had a bloody lip. He kept or she kept punching him and he removed himself from the situation, didn't lay any hands on her. And the comments are just gross. Like people are like, ha ha ha, that's fucking hilarious. Get your ass beat, scrub, fucking loser, go die. And it's always just funny to me because if any of these situations, you know, even this Richard Sherman one, like we don't know what happened. These are just reported facts. And I hope that whatever, you know, whatever she went through that it's a passing phase, maybe and Dwayne's Haskins and her works it out or whatever, or they get out of the relationship, if that's what best for them. But we need to stop attacking dudes who get physically abused. Like it's a real problem. Women can be just as big of vile predators that men can be. They can be more emotionally abusive. They can be more physically abusive, right? Because guys are tougher. If, if a woman punches a dude, like, is he going to be willing to come out and say what happened to him? Uh, is, you know, they can scratch, they have long fingernails. You know, there's a lot of, lot of different things that can happen in, in this. And domestic violence is never okay. And domestic violence isn't anything really to joke at. Now, if you're making just like a troll joke, it's okay, but making fun of someone going through it personally isn't isn't really funny to most people and shouldn't be funny to you because it, it happens so often that you may not even know what's going on, right? And it, it's never just one instance. No one's like, yep, I, ha- I blew up one time and the police caught me. No, it's usually... Uh, a hundred things that add up that this person is this way all the time and 
we've just never seen it before. So hopefully Dwayne Haskins can find some peace from his, I think his fiance. Um, and he, you know, the, the truth comes out and whether it's good, bad, or ugly, uh, he, he's in a good relationship and in away from all that negativity. Um, I'm not throwing blame here, but I do know that if this woman was in his life and it was a, you know, a real tough situation where he didn't really feel comfortable and he felt, you know, in a bad spot and he'd been getting abused and all these negative comments. I wonder how much that affected his gameplay. Yeah, not saying that that's the reason why he sucked as a quarterback. I didn't think he, I think he got overdrafted just because he played well against Michigan and some other shitty Big Ten defenses. But I think for the most part, we can kind of point to and, and realize that domestic violence on both sides is dirty, ugly, and nasty. Beautiful putt. I just watched go in. Yeah, I'm watching the Barbasol open. And a, and a Raban Lahiri just made a huge putt for Eagle. Um, moving on, the last thing I want to talk about is Matthew Stafford, guys. If you didn't hear the news, Matthew Stafford is now suddenly a top five or six quarterback in the league because he left the Lions organization. He, he As soon as you leave the Lions organization, you just stop sucking dick. It's that easy. It's that, it's that, it's that easy. But... I do hate the fact that every single time this happens, that someone leaves, and they do end up getting better every time. i never really seen anyone get worse. Um, you run into this, this thing where it's like, well, how many careers have already been ruined? And then you run into a dickhead like The Huge Show. So I don't know if you guys listen to The Huge Show. Maybe you guys are listeners. If Huge Show, you're listening to this. I, I think that you have some of the most asinine takes on a lot of things. And you intentionally try to say stupid shit. To, to, like, it's, not, it's not at any way like an honest take. It's just to say shit to stir shit up. But... Uh, Matthew Stafford leaves, right? Becomes a top five quarterback, which I would argue that he isn't top five right now. I'd say he's in the top, top 10. You could definitely in the top half, but I would probably argue top 10 safely. He has the arm talent above, you know, most of the people in the top 10, but obviously not the success or, or the team, you know, not the personal or team success that maybe you'd want. And then he'd still come out and like, oh, Matthew Stafford sucks. I believe that Jared Goff is a better quarterback. Like, if you believe Jared Goff is a better fucking quarterback, you're out of your goddamn mind. Like, it's just a stupid take. And I don't think you're stupid. So I assume that you're just saying something, honestly, just to troll. You think that the Rams are overvaluing Matt Stafford in comparison to... Um, Grom by two draft picks that you're that much smarter than all those front offices and I'm not a big like hey front office knows but you think they're overvaluing him that much and then he comes up with a comment oh his stats have been padded he just puts in huge fourth quarter performances against shitty teams in the last two years the Lions have more fourth quarter blown leads than anyone in the NFL and if you watch the games actually watch the games not just sit there and say, yup, Stafford blew another game because he he doesn't get a third down conversion after he gets blitzed by four guys on back-to-back run plays because his head coach was a fucking moron. But you watch the game. First half, usually well. Open playbook. Lines get up by two scores. Run play, run play, play action pass. Run play, run play, play action pass. Hey, we're going to throw a screen play. We didn't change our audibles from the beginning of the offseason, and we're now in the third game in the season, and now they know that I'm checking to this out route because you won't let me change any of my checks, and you, your sto- coaching staff is that dumb. And I throw an out route, and the guy jumps the route and cuts it because you haven't changed anything, and we don't hide any of our looks offensively. Guys, like, Matt Stafford isn't going to live up to the hypes of what everyone's talking like. Everyone's like, he's going to throw for 5,000 yards. Guys, it's probably not going to happen in a run-heavy, play-action-pass-heavy offense. But I can tell you something with certainty. Matthew Stafford was the best player on every single one of his offenses. And you can talk about Calvin Johnson being the greatest. And I would agree that Calvin Johnson made a thousand different plays that shouldn't have been made. But I think that Matthew Stafford, with the front line he was continually given, with no run game, with a coaching staff that couldn't develop anyone to give a fuck, with with a complete lackluster defense where he'd have to outscore everyone and know that every time, he had that all on his conscience, right? I, I love Megatron. Megatron is one of my favorite players of all time. 
And I'm so happy he got a Hall of Fame nod, even after retiring early because the Lions treat him like shit. Another key indicator that the Lions organization sucks dick. But Matthew Stafford had to force balls. Like, it was either, hey, I'm going to throw this down the field to Kenny Galladay, or I'm going to have to punt anyway and they're going to score. I can probably throw them out of better punt range than we're going to play them. And you kind of saw this risk-reward, and I think that Matthew Stafford with an offense that Ryan Tannehill can run pretty progressively, getting through reads with good running game. If, if, if Ryan Tannehill can do a good job in that offense and Jared Goff can throw for 4,000 yards and 3,200 or in 32 touchdowns, like the sky really is the limit for Matthew Stafford. Now he's going to have to reduce the amount of risk he take, right? And he's going to really have to prolong and get through his reads a little bit quicker and be a little bit more of a pocket presence uh, as we've seen, but people who think that Jared Goff, even if Jared Goff wins more game, if you think Jared Goff is going to play better, and I want to be honest here, if you blame any of the losses in the last two years on Matthew Stafford's shoulders, you are a moron, man. Like, just watch the game tape. Stafford be 16 of 18 in the first half for 200 yards and two TDs, and then it'd be run play, run play, okay, third down and long because we can't run the ball, or it'd be, all right, screen pass on third and long, all right, obviously we're going to be doing that. It, like, it was the most unbelievable shit. Like, how in the world anyone could blame him in huge show? I think you're smart. Like, I, I hear some of your takes, and I'm like, yeah, I mean, I, this guy's right on. So I can't, for any understanding, believe, other than for the fact that you love the Lions more than any rational person should, that you feel dedicated to the organization, and you want to feel that they've been doing the right thing for the last 20 years, the Lions haven't given me anything to cheer about my entire lifetime. I've only been able to cheer on Matt Stafford and Calvin Johnson. I've never cheered on the Lions. Like, I've wanted to, but what have they given me? And you can say, well, Matt Stafford hasn't won any playoff games. Yup, man, you're totally right. When, when your defense lets up 35 points, when you're up by 20 in, in the second half, yup, you're right. It's your offense's fault for not scoring more. When your team slows things down and starts running the ball, that, that's your fault for not making the plays on third and long when you're getting rushed by five. It, it makes sense. It, it, it does. You're, you're so smart. But in all honesty, I don't. I think they're overvaluating him because he's in this new offense and they're projecting. It's a projection thing, and I've talked about this my whole entire time. I we, I'm fine with projecting, but you can't project the moon just because you've seen this. You know, just because you've seen the sky. Like, yeah, I think a flying Joe. Uh, you know, flying. A giant space rock is floating out there somewhere. But what I'd be like, yep, first thought is that's what the moon exactly is, and it's going to be right there and affect the ocean tides. And that's what they're doing with this. And I get it. He's going to a big brand. You want to create some energy around a team with a new stadium and a lot of hype and a lot of expectations with a good defense. I don't think top five. I mean, maybe he'll play like top five and shut me up. And I'd love that, Matthew. Matthew Stafford, I'd love for you to do that because you're one of my all-time favorite quarterbacks in the way that I've seen you take hits that no quarterback should take hits. I've seen you put your body, your soul on the line. I remember when you had a broken finger for three consecutive weeks to end the season, and then people blamed you when wide receivers were dropping passes that were wobbling a little bit. Like, I understand that, man. I understand. And you getting out of here, I think, is the best breakup for both of us because it didn't grow long to a tenure that you started hating the Lions franchise. Maybe you already do, but it didn't seem like that. And, and we can still appreciate you as a fan base. I don't I don't blame you for all of our losses. Sure, some losses, I can remember them. But when has Lions football mattered that our quarterback didn't play us to win? Every single time he's had to play us to win. And I don't think that anything's going to change this year. If anyone thinks that Jared Goff is going to magically have a resurrection of a full career, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say that's probably not that. I think he's going to play better because the Lions have a tremendous line and have the running game figured out. I think he's going to play better. I think he can't possibly play as bad as he has the last few seasons. But people want to make excuses that he's banged up. Guys, Matthew Stafford has played banged up his entire career. Matthew Stafford played through a, a torn shoulder. He's played through broken anything. Ribs are broken. He he high rolls his ankle, and then he trucks a defender the next week. Like, that guy, I love that guy, and I hope him all the best. Any of you guys who are like, oh, I, you guys would rather a playoff win for him than a Lions. Like, yeah, God, I'm going to be a Lions fan the rest of my life, even though it doesn't make any sense. 
But Matthew Stafford only has five to six more years in the league. And I want to see him have some success so that his history that's marred with the Lions, you know, isn't his only history. I want everyone to kind of forget that he was ever on the Lions so that when he has successful seasons, we can be like, yep, he was good. With that being said, I'm going to be moving on to the MLB. We're going to be talking about the All-Star Game, second half, the fact that Joe Buck still announces everything, home run derby, and just overall thoughts on second half. Not really predictions, just just second half kind of thoughts and feelings. So Shohei Otani uh, pitches. He starts. He hits twice, goes 0 for 2, pitches an inning, doesn't let up a run, gets the win, and the AL wins 5-2 in the All-Star Game. Vlad Guerrero Jr. wins the MVP. He hit an absolute tater tot of a home run. Like, that thing was gone instantaneously. Uh, they were talking to Fernando Tatis on the mic, and he knew it was out. He's like, oh, oh, fuck. Like, that shit jumped out of that. That that It was it was way gone. Um, Flag Guerrero became the youngest MVP of the All-Star game ever. He had two RBIs, including a home run. He played really well. He also almost took off Max Scherzer's head. Uh, on a line drive to open the game, and the only reason why he didn't get a hit is because they were shifted correctly. One of the things that the All-Star game I found interesting, it outperformed the NBA All-Star game and the uh, Pro Bowl, um, the NFL Pro Bowl, which is, you know, I know those aren't really shocking, but I was pretty shocked to find out that uh, the NBA All-Star game, which always has a ton of hype this this last year, wasn't as highly watched at, at peak, at peak, maybe total viewers are you know, it depends on how you view it, but total peak, um, the MLB All-Star game was, was higher than the NBA All-Star game, which is huge, and then obviously the Pro Bowl, it's never really had the hype that it truly deserves, mostly because it isn't a real game, and so I'm, I'm not going to use that, but it also did better than that, which is kind of cool, but one of the things that the All-Star game has to get better at is Shohei Otani, right, doing nothing since Babe Ruth, got two at-bats, two ground outs in the first three innings, and then, um, her first four innings and pitched one inning and was gone. Like I get, we want to get subs in, but I hate the fact that the 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 MVP award winner should just play the entire game. Like you, there's enough people anywhere else. There's enough places to put people other spots in the outfield. Like you can figure it out. You can figure out a way to play and let the MVP award winners, you know, play the entirety of the game. Now. I do also think that more has to be done that weekend. I think that this break is good for baseball. It lets people kind of rest and relax. But I think that more can be done in this time frame, man. I honestly think that having the MLB All-Star game not on the weekend, it just it doesn't feel right. I think a Saturday night NBA game or, or maybe even like a Friday night NBA game or uh, sorry, MLB All-Star game with lead up to that all week, I think would be a lot of, lot of fun. And I think it would also set up teams for that Friday to have two days off and then start series back on Monday. With that being said, we also had the home run derby. Otani kind of disappointed in that. He hit one home run in the first minute and then over the next three minutes hit 21. So he didn't perform poorly. Uh, uh, Soto ended up hitting a bomb as well, or hitting a bunch of bombs. He His stance changed. He's usually much more into his hips, and he wasn't into his hips, so maybe that'll give him some power, um, kind of getting an all-star look at things. And uh, But what we do got to talk about is Pete Alonso is just goddamn dangerous. I think Vlad Guerrero might be the best pure hitter. He wasn't in this one. But Pete Alonso, guys, ended up beating Vlad Guerrero, and this dude hits absolute moonshots every single time he steps up and people can say like oh congratulations he can hit home runs that's that's a skill like Jesus Christ guys he hit 34 home runs in four minutes like that's impressive and then he followed it up with with 22 and 20 I think the one thing that I don't like about the home run derby is that I I get that the thought of having it in a tournament style makes sense I understand why, but people like Otani get fucked when Juan Soto, who has tremendous power, who changed his swing specifically to hit in this home run derby, and who doesn't have a lot of home runs, is the lowest seed, and then when Pete Alonso, who doesn't have a lot of home runs because he missed a month of the season, and he won the home run derby the year before, he's like a seven seed. Like, you get fucked in the tournament because it's not always true. I think it should just be the first round robin, and then 
you know, AL versus NL and the AL champion faces off against the NL champion maybe or something like that if you want to do a little tournament. But uh, Yadier, no, oh my God. I know. Uh, Salvador Perez hit 28, but because he was going against Pete Alonso, he doesn't move on. He hit the second most of the first round, but he doesn't move on because he's going against a guy who was a lower seed than him, even though he won the home run derby. I just think that the way they do it, it's great, and I think having the home run derby is is a ton of fun, and I think Pete Alonso is a dude who hits absolute nukes, but I also know something else is true. I also know something else is true, is that it would be more fun if the last, like, four, let's say half, you know, there's eight people, four move on, AL versus NL or whatever have you, depending on how it all kind of breaks down, but I, I honestly just think that having it in the way, in the format that they have it now, it kind of limits what we get to see and limits the fun. <clears throat> uh, moving on to the All-Star game, there's a lot of good moments defensively. There's some great moments, a good sliding catch by a dude who's never played outfield before. But someone that I do want to talk about, something that I, I always want to talk about, is Joe Buck. Um, Joe Buck and live interviews. I think live interviews during games is absolutely awesome. I think live jump-ins in the dugout are fun. I think that baseball should be respected as the game it is, which it can have a bunch of casual conversations. You can you can talk throughout a game and not miss a whole lot until you look away from the TV and someone hits a home run. But Joe Buck reportedly asked Chris Bryant about all the trade rumors and about him not being on the Cubs team. And I, Joe Buck, how does he still have a job? Does anyone actually like Joe Buck? And I know I've railed about him a lot on this podcast, but Joe Buck just, he is who the media wants the, the guy to be. Like, they want an absolute idiot that asks dumb questions that, like, does Joe Buck add anything to a game? Like, do I think that Joe Buck adds anything? No. I don't know what commentator we should use, but Joe Buck being involved in all these games and calling all these games and being a top commentator, I honestly don't think he adds anything. And I'm not saying I would do better. I probably wouldn't do better. But in no sense of the way do I think that Joe Buck does a good job of delivering anything. A 99-yard run by Derrick Henry was called as this. All right, a run off the right side. He breaks free. Derrick Henry, a stiff arm, and he's going, and and he's going, and he's running away from everyone. Touchdown, Derrick Henry. Like, you should have just been fired on the spot, my guy. Like, like, and I, I don't want to be, like, super mean to this guy because his whole life work is this, and he's made a fuck ton more money than I ever will, but... Do you ever wonder how these people got these gigs? Like, do you wonder how some of these guys who just have these ridiculous takes and these guys who say these stupid things continually get all these huge jobs just because they have ties in the media? Like, do you actually think Joe Buck is worth as much money as he is? Do you think that, like, his job, he does a great job at it? I don't, I don't think so. And I think most of the people my age also don't think so. But you're telling me there's no one out there that's better? Hell, just give someone a trial run. At least a 99-yard run, they'd be like, oh my god, it's a run, oh my god! Like, Joe Buck just... Whenever, it's not even about not adding to the game. He he genuinely distracts you and takes away moments from the game just in the way that he presents information. Uh, yeah, Roger, uh, what do you say back to you guys? And it's just like... He's trying to be cool and think that he's a part of the club when everyone in the club's kind of laughing at him and know that he's not meant to be there. I, I don't know the exact dynamic, but I'm just an anti-Joe Buck guy, and he just always asks the wrong questions. I, I've never seen a good article written about him, and I just don't know how he still has a job. Now, moving on from that... Um, I think the biggest thing that are going to come down to the second half is if any big trades. I think the top teams are going to stay the top teams for the most part. Um, San Francisco has really proven that they're a really good baseball team. Um, now, in baseball, that doesn't mean anything. You can prove yourself you're a really good baseball team for three months in any sport, and it usually means great success, but three months in baseball, and it doesn't mean anything. What I really want to talk about is who is the guy that changes dynamics for each team and Who's going to go out and get them? I don't know if uh, 
the Giants can get a bat or another pitcher, but I think they need another bat or another pitcher. I don't think the Dodgers really need to add anybody. The Padres probably don't need to add anybody, but a team that's like middling in the road, like do the Yankees go out and get someone or do they kind of chalk this up as a lost year as our offense isn't really hitting? Does Boston, you know, Chris Sale's coming up, uh, just got called um, into his first rehab start. Um, Jared Dunhar or something like that. One of their top prospects just got called up. So we'll see, but I know they need pitching and I don't know if they're necessarily going to get it. I don't know if they're going to get bullpen help or, or what have you, but don't be surprised if the trade deadline is either big boom or big bust and overall on transactions. I think there's a lot of teams that could get better, but I don't know if there's a lot of teams that are going to want to risk getting better with just financials and stuff like that. On late news and sad news, um, Trevor Bauer has been extended onto his administrative lead until the 23rd, which is next week. Um, this was made as a decision that they're still investigating the claims and people are really concerned on the the story as a whole because everyone wants to be really reactionary. And I kind of brought it up that I don't know the whole story, but it seems that whatever happened initially was consensual and it went past that line. And it went, and it went past that line maybe multiple times on two occurrences it seems like. And I don't know the woman. I'm not going to throw any blame on her, but it sounds like she was put into an uncomfortable position and Trevor Bauer seemed to not care initially and then B tried to overly care and be sensitive about things on the back end. So I don't know if he knew it was a mistake and kind of felt bad or if he was just trying to cover his ass that to make sure he doesn't get sued. I don't know. Trevor Bauer, he kind of seems like a guy that would act like that, but I don't want to throw shade on someone just because he kind of has an awkward and douchebag personality. I hope this gets resolved for MLB and for Trevor Bauer. He's the most expensive pitcher in the MLB, signed one of the biggest contracts per year ever. And I think what's best for everyone here is if the truth gets found out, right? And, and, And the truth can mean a lot of things. But if Trevor Bauer gets found guilty and the MLB you know, kicks him off and says, hey, you have 182 day or maybe you're suspended for life or whatever have you, then a, then a conclusion can be reached. But until we find out that truth, any conclusion that anyone throws on it is always going to be, well, he should be banned for life. Well, he didn't do anything wrong. And it's like, guys, if someone has an open investigation, you, you might just want to say, hey, let's play this one out, find out what happens and move on from there, which is what the MLB is doing here and saying, hey, you're still going to be paid. You're going to be on administrative leave and we're going to find out what what's going on. And I think that's that's a good thing. I think we should all want that, is that whenever, you know, we're that person, even though we're all never going to do anything wrong, is that we want the benefit of the doubt in most cases to not be yelled at and to, to not be thrown into kind of the public foray. So thank you guys for listening. I know I went a bit long on this one. I'm going to be also uploading later tonight on Tomorrow War starring Chris Pratt. I have a few different maybe finicky picky uh, takeouts on this but I thought it was a pretty good movie overall so if you guys do like it share it tell your friends let them know we're going to be continuing to grind here my next goal is 150 after 150 um, it'll probably be time for me to move and I might think I might take a month off or two weeks off I'll kind of come into that decision but I'm trying to grind and get to 150 guys I thank you guys as always for listening to me upload to to taking your time and in and really you know, hearing me rant and rave and bullshit. The corners have been painted. You guys have a wonderful night.